panelists are, starting to my right, is John Albright. He's the Chief Legal and Compliance Officer for Hub International. John is a uh, commercially-centered legal and compliance executive with leadership experience in public, private, and private equity-owned companies. Uh, in serving as general counsel for a number of multinational corporations in complex and vastly uh, different industry segments, Mr. Albright has a proven track record of building and leading efficient and effective legal departments in environments ranging from the highly regulated to a global concern that often resembles the culture of a technology startup. Please welcome John Albright. Uh, John, can you just share us a, a little personal anecdote about yourself? You got a mic? I think I found a new PR agent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, um, uh, and my, my wife is here today. I, I won't call her out and embarrass her, but um, uh, between the two of us, we have lived so many places that at our wedding, each table was a different town that we had lived in, and there were probably 30 tables. So uh, wow. here I sit in Chicago today for now. Excellent. Thank you. And then next uh, to John's left, uh, or yeah, to John's right, your left, is Herman Schroeder. He's a senior counsel with Rabo Agrifinance. Herman is a member of Rabobank's North America Region uh, Legal Department and co uh, Collateral and Corporate Governance Team. He is, his expertise spans the broad spectrum of in-house counsel duties, including commercial transactions, regulatory compliance, investigations, complaint and audit responses, employment law, litigation management, consumer lending, digital, TV, print marketing, vendor contracts, fraud prevention, pr prosecution, and business consolidations. He's an active member of the Missouri Bar. Please welcome Herman Schroeder. Yes. And Herman, please share a little a bit of a known, unknown fact or little known fact about yourself or your experience. So um, I'm in enemy territory, but uh, I'm a lifelong uh, St. Louis uh, area <laughs> resident, and I'm, and I'm a avid Cardinals fan, and uh, I'll get out, sorry get about out. what happened to the Cubs. <laughs> so sure is Madden. <laughs> and then in the middle, last but not certainly not least, we have Peter Warlow. Uh, he's traveled the farthest to be here today, all the way from Sydney, Australia. Uh, Peter, is a, he's got strong experience in each major area of commercial practice. Uh, Peter has a broad strength in multiple aspects of finance, commercial, and contracting, uh, covering significant roles in different customer commercial management, uh, partnerships, mergers, and acquisitions, insolvency, prep professional accounting, strategy, business systems deployment, etc. His, ro his role as an advisor to the board members and a position on the board of an ASX-listed entity round out his broad and deep commercial experience. Further, Peter has held several, has held various leadership roles that cover team implementation, building development, and leadership. This includes leading multiple teams across multiple geographies, leveraging skills, capabilities, and personal interests in obtaining great business and people outcomes. Peter Wallow, welcome. Thank you. So, Peter, please enlighten us about a personal fact about yourself. Well, I, I might change it from the one you've got on there. Um, I, st I paid my way through university by putting people on roller coasters. So, we'll t we, if, I, if I can weed that into today's story, I will. But um, the, the one that you've got there is my, uh, I've got three kids, and they've just started doing uh, 
dinghy sailing and they've invited me to join them. So picture me in a very, very tiny dinghy. It's a great experience. <laughs> I'd encourage it to everybody. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you all panelists for joining us today. So before we get started with the overall panel discussion, I just want to kind of set the stage a bit. So there's a consensus that's emerged from uh, digital transformation uh, that emerges from the digital transformation tr transformative technologies that we talked about on the last panel, being AI, robotic process automation, blockchain technology, and others, that there's going to be a significant disruption in the legal market, okay? AI will impact the availability of legal sector jobs, the business models of many law firms, and how in-house counsel leverages technology. According to Deloitte, about 100,000 legal sector jobs are likely to be automated in the next 20 years. Deloitte claims that 39%, 39% of law firms or law lawyers' jobs could be automated, 39%. Some estimates suggest that the adoption of legal technology, including AI, already available now, would reduce lawyers' hours by 13%. So, we've decided to break this subject down into three primary areas of focus. Number one is... How do we survive the digital transformation age? Or is it still a challenge? And can legal really drive corporate growth strategy? Can you sh and we'll share some tips and warnings on that from our panel and possibly from you as participants. And who or what do we look for for inspiration on our journey of digital transformation? Okay. So let's kick off that first question. How do we survive digital transformation, or is it a challenge? Uh, let's start with John. Any comments on that? I mean, a digital transformation means so many things to uh, whoever you're asking. You know, I think the uh, it it's interesting when you go to these people. Uh, you kind of went into the fire and brimstone there out of the gate there, Carl. Um, <laughs> they tend to soft pedal what impact AI and automation is going to have, you know, on the world in general, and it is going to be disruptive. It is going to displace attorney jobs. It is going to automate a lot of what we're doing. And I, I, at the keynote in legal tech, that was probably one of the more of the fire and brimstone where they said, you know, the, the 50 bet the company firms probably think they're safe, and they are. The problem is there'll only be 15 of them. So, um, you know, I don't think any of us know where it's going to go. And I think because we're lawyers, uh, I was on, on a panel earlier, and I, I – it wasn't really a joke, it's a statement of fact. I still get a lot of Word documents that are 1997 from my external law firms. <laughs> so we, we are slow to adopt technology. And if you see e-discovery, which is probably the most evolved technology uh, in, in massive deployment uh, in the legal world, it took a decade for it to get to critical mass. It took a decade for the lawyers to trust it and probably more important in that capacity for the courts and the judges to trust it. But now you have to use it. If you're not using it, you're not, you're not living to that standard. We will get there in digital transformation, and I think depending on the industry you're in, uh, you may get there quicker than others. I mean, insurance, you know, if you, if you take the GEICOs, the director retail, the online insurance brokers out, let's look at insur commercial insurance we really aren't delivering it much differently than we did post-World War II. A lot of phone calls, a lot of paper. 
and most of us are running broker management systems, which are our contract lifecycle management platforms, if you will. Uh, they're made by a handful of vendors, and I don't know if this is by design, but they aren't overly cross-compatible. So anything we're doing, we have to factor that into the equation. And, uh, you know, if you're using Salesforce as a contract lifecycle management platform, it does that. Uh, you can check the manual. It's cross-compatible with a whole host of things. And now you have all these companies making plugins, applications, whatever, whatever you uh, call them, on top of that, and we're looking at a licensing platform that actually runs on Salesforce. We, of course, are you know one of the five companies out there not running Salesforce, so we will not be fully leveraging its capability and cross-referencing to our producer workforce, but a lot of this is coming, but is it coming in a way that is applicable to your business? Uh, you know, As it was said on the last panel, what problem are you solving for? And is it realistic? that um, there's an application out there that will address it, that you can afford, and that you can implement and tie in to your existing platforms, whether it's your CRM, your enterprise risk management platform, your HRIS, you know, I could go down the acronyms. So I, I think it means different things to different people. And um, it also, where is the investment? And just one last point, just looking at insurance, uh, InsureTech was uh, the big InsureTech conference was was last week, and um, if you look at where the investment is, it's carrier heavy. It's insurance carrier heavy. Yeah. They're not really focused on distribution yet. Brokers are in distribution, so you know when that starts to take off and we we really start to digitize our operational footprint, it's far easier for the legal department to follow. Hmm. Herman, can I ask you a question? If you don't mind, I'd like to say, uh, ask you, what ways do you see legal departments trying to survive or thrive in the digital transformation age? Yeah, so I like the uh, concept of thrive, uh, Carl. Um, uh, survive uh, sounds a little, uh, <laughs> a little too negative to me. Um, it, my, my, uh, I, I bring a uh, completely different perspective, I think, um, to a lot of. Um, the folks who presented earlier today. I'm, I'm sort of the technician um, who's using the uh, data analytics and, 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 and using the, the technology that um, our general counsel developed um, uh, four or five years ago. Uh, Chuck did a really good job earlier of describing the um, financial services industry, uh, heavily regulated. The data was out there. It was just a question of of and, and, and processes and procedures required by regulations uh, were out there. It was just a matter of getting that data um, uh, into process maps. Uh, the process um, that we, um, that Philip, our general counsel, uh, uh, won an innovation award with Exigent this, this year, um, uh, was building uh, commercial loan uh, documentation for agricultural um, clients. Um, large uh, farms all across the country. And uh, so, so the technology um, um, you know, was developed. Um, I was brought in um, as, in fact, um, a Thompson Coburn um, attorney. And, and so uh, Thompson Coburn had won um, the RFP with uh, Robo AgriFinance. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially it was up to um, 
me and a couple of other lawyers uh, to figure out how to how to turn that automation in, into a, a, you know a good product. Um, I'm a little skeptical about whether lawyers th that many lawyers are going to lose their jobs. Um, I think um, what we did is a good example of. Um, uh, where lawyers are still going to be needed. Uh, we, we were told that we we're going to be checking blanks for to make sure interest rates were uh, properly completed, uh, that uh, you know, uh, prepayment uh, fees were properly uh, provided for. Uh, and we found ourselves customizing uh, uh, language for uh, the, uh, you know, the unique deals that, um, you know, that some of the uh, relationship managers, that, uh, managers had negotiated. So uh, from, from, from that perspective, um, I think uh, the legal uh, arena uh, will thrive. Um, I think uh, Rabo is a very good environment uh, in terms of innovation and uh, using data analytics, uh, doing a lot of things to get out in front of, of uh, changes in the regulatory and uh, commercial loan mm -hmm. industry, um, doing a lot with uh, 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 integration of systems uh, to make systems talk to each other better to produce a better product uh, to give transparency to our clients uh, on their mobile phones. That's excellent. And, and I would just add so people aren't updating their LinkedIn profiles during our panel. Uh, <laughs> to the extent lawyers do use jobs, it's not going to happen quickly and it's not going to happen soon. But inevitably, there will be certain tasks that are automated. Yeah, I actually think that there's actually a lot of opportunities. I'm, I'm not so much a doom and gloom guy when it comes to this. Um, I'm sure Chip Delaney out there might have some comments on that as well. Um, but I actually see that uh, lawyers, especially young lawyers, could have a role in increasing the use of technology in the law firms, and that will actually create more job opportunities. They won't be doing this sort of traditional work that we did as lawyers in the past where they're, you know, sitting in a room full of boxes and looking through papers and papers and documents and things and trying to find the needle in the haystack. Uh, but they'll be using technology to do that for them and then being able to apply higher level skills and learn those skills at a faster rate than I think people like myself have spent two years in law practice you know, doing due diligence. Absolutely. And, and, the, and the law schools are already adapting to that. Uh, Northwestern has a joint program with their computer engineering program their computer engineering school, and uh, they have a class that kind of builds a legal solution over a semester. And the, 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 the uh, law students that are coming out today are far more technologically advanced than, than lawyers were historically, and they are learning key skills that are gaps in most legal departments and, and to a lesser degree law firms around project management and um, technology integration because, you know, there's, there's a lot of great technology out there and there's a lot of law out there. The challenge often is bridging the two of them because we speak two completely different languages. And, you know, Northwestern is solving for that simultaneously because the computer engineering PhDs are learning the law and uh, the law school, law school students are, are learning a little bit about the technology. Peter, you want to comment on that? Oh, look, uh, I think I've been brought here to be the reality check. <laughs> so l let's talk about Australia, right? So earlier today, the first speaker, um, the doctor, talked about how 88% of your top 500 won't be around in three years. Australia's top companies have been around 100 years. You look at the, the top 10, top 20, very, very few of them are uh, short-lived companies. 
But what that means is they've actually had to uh, challenge themselves and build the innovation inside the organisation. What it also means, though, is your top companies are digital natives. They're used to the digital world. Australian context, they're not digital native companies, so they're having to learn it and roll it out. So the project I've been involved in at Telstra um, over the past three years has been rolling out a, uh, the digitisation of the contract system. But the context was removing 25% of all lawyers across the whole corporation and a similar cut to external legal fees. So that's the reality check. You said 39%. Well, 25% gone today. Mm. And I would say another 10% in the next 12 months, but I shouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> this is the reality. I'm starting to look pretty positive here. <laughs> right, this is the reality, right? So um, we have two bits of technology. We, none, no AI yet. A little bit of robotics. This is just digitization. This is putting contracts in place on systems, uh, linking with Salesforce, linking with other things. Um, Driving standardisation, um, yes, lawyers are involved in the process, but only at the very much the, the defining the template stage. One of our key goals in the process was to remove uh, lawyers from the sales process. Lawyers were adding three to six days on average to the sales process. If you've got incremental revenues of, say, I don't know, 500 billion, sorry, 500 million, I'll get the numbers right, that's, that's five to ten million dollars you cut out and increase your revenue by just by removing that cycle time. So. It's real. It really is real. The removal of legal resources is going to happen. Where you move those legal resources to and what new opportunities opens up, that's your real challenge. And there are some, and so I'm not going to be doom and gloom, <laughs> but in terms of corporate lawyers, um, the cut's happening. Hmm. And, and this is before AI. This is before robotics. Would you say those cuts are happening more at the, the junior level, junior to mid-level, or the, what the, level? This was top-down. Um, top-down, okay. Uh, absolutely top down. Um, it did push, actually top, more the top went because for digitisation, um, you can, what you're doing is de-skilling the work to a paralegal level. <laughs> so that's you know, a very I different focus from what people keep talking about. It sounds like, if anything, Australia may be more evolved from a technology adoption standpoint. I, I do a fair amount of speaking on this and you know, I, I like polling the audience and if you look at in-house lawyers, uh, if you take e-discovery and matter management systems, e-billing matter management systems out of the mix, almost none of them are investing in technology of any scale because they don't have the resources and they don't have the dollars. And you know, it, we're, we're doing more with the same. I, 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 don't, I, I think certainly the general counsels I talk to we're certainly not cutting heads, and we're not in a position to cut heads uh, due to technology or really anything, but we are looking for ways to make our lives easier, to automate certain tasks, and um, to invest. But again, if, if you're not a Fortune 500 company, or in some respects even a Fortune 100 company, uh, Walmart is investing in technology, but they have uh, you know they have a they have a platform that automates the generation of an answer in your first round of discovery in, in about 45 seconds. We looked at it. We have we have almost 600 claims pending at any time. Those aren't all in active litigation, but it's far more than most companies have. We could not justify the investment. The ROI wasn't there because we didn't have enough. Walmart has 6,000 a year just in the U.S. They can justify it. So I think that's a lot of the challenge we're running into is building that internal business case. And it has slowed investment. Um, so, you know, I, I think the in-house lawyers 
uh, to the extent there is rationalization of, 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 of attorneys due to, due to this, it's probably going to happen at the law firm level first because they can take that investment and they can spread it across multiple clients. And, um, you know, a number of them, if you go to Inspire Legal, which is more of a, more of a legal VC conference than it is, a, you know, a, a, a core uh, attorney conference, I was amazed at the number of Amlaw 50 firms that had multiple people there. They're investing. And the Amlaw 50 firms tend to have Amlaw 50 rates, so they have the most to lose from all this. So they have to find creative solutions. They are far more likely to partner with an ALSP than a smaller firm, and you wouldn't think that. But again, they, they understand if you're paying an associate, a first-year associate, $190,000 a year, uh, you, you have to find creative ways to remain competitive or you're just going to start losing work. And, and I think the law firms, for all of their resistance, are going to be a big driver in technology adoption. So uh, Peter and I kidded a little bit last night about um, being on a panel and, and, and counterpunching. Um, so, you know, your concept of, of, of the loss of legal jobs, I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. Um, interestingly, um, the, the uh, RFP that I'm talking about, I've now transitioned in-house at, at Robo, and uh, our, the, the Thompson-Coburn legal team has increased in size. Now, that, a lot of that's due to the fact that um, there's a recent acquisition. Um, my sense is that um, the process map that was digitized and, and, and that automated uh, the legal document review process. It took out 73 steps in a process that, that crossed different um, departmental um, uh, responsibilities. And somebody said this morning, uh, when, when, when you do that kind of an analysis, um, everybody thinks the, you know, the, the, what is it, the pig stuck in the boa is at the legal department. Nine times out of 10, there's a process step somewhere where you know legal's trying to follow up on something where, where a process was missed elsewhere in the organization. We just so. just have a question here from the audience. So so uh, probably because I wanted John to look into the lights. Uh, so John, can you tell us a little bit about when somebody does depart from the legal department from an in-house perspective? What skills are you looking to replace them with? Are you looking for an expert in X? Are you looking for a generalist? Are you even looking for a non-lawyer? to fill those roles uh, to support growth in the legal department? It, it depends on what we're trying to solve for. We, we have had a dedicated legal operations person in our budget for the last three years, and we have yet to hire them because we end up needing, I mean, if you need an M&A lawyer, you need an M&A lawyer. So, you know, I think if you look at our biggest skill gaps that are going to bridge us into this digital revolution, we need technologists, we need project management skills, we need skills that the traditional lawyer that's been out of law school more than three to five years probably doesn't inherently have. So I, I think if you look at what our, um, we are kind of diverging from what companies were doing, which is kind of laying off or outsourcing paralegals, admins, lower level, we're bringing a lot of that back in house. Uh, we're still outsourcing a fair amount of things, but uh, they tend to be better at managing ALSPs. Uh, you know, the primary owner of our Exigent uh, relationship is a paralegal, and, uh, and we have multiple relationships with Exigent. So
if you if you look at both of them, that primary owner is, is a paralegal. There are lawyers very much involved in it, but um, paralegals have been ma managing vendors much longer than attorneys have because they've overseen discovery. Uh, they've overseen a lot of things that the billable hour lawyer wasn't necessarily directly involved in. So yeah, I think it's a very different skill set. Um, earlier this year, we had probably about eight or 10 people from our legal department, um, Carl actually actually joined us, um, go to Six Sigma certification. So they're, they're all white belts, which means you spend a day learning the baselines of Six Sigma, because we just wanted to get them exposure to that. And we wanted them to start looking at critical processes that we do over and over again. We'll do somewhere close to 70 M&A transactions this year. Uh, that's something we should be looking at from a process standpoint to do more efficiency, efficiently to automate. There's a whole host of things we're looking at. And, you know, we will not be able to do it without partners like Exigent and, and others that have solutions and platforms running uh, that we can cherry pick what's going to work for our, uh, our uses and services. I'd um, echo what you've just said. Uh, Telstra put on a um, chief of operations for legal. Um, and they also put the whole legal team through agile project management training. Very much moving to that new world where um, it really is about ongoing efficiency and improvement. Um, perhaps later on we can touch on smart contracts and the, and the impact that'll have because that's driving the next set of efficiencies. Um, but, um, so I, I'm going to go outside the box a little bit and circle back to what Crystal spoke about this morning. Um, Robbo's got a huge um, culture for um, the kind of leadership um, at all levels and the kind of uh, accountability and um, you know, zero 100% accountability concepts, uh, repair broken relationships in the moment. It's huge. And I think um, law schools should be teaching that. Um, and I think um, uh, entire um, corporate cultures that, that teach that are a lot uh, more on the uh, cutting edge uh, as far as, as you know, making this transition into technology. First of all, I just want to thank the panel for um, uh, valuing legal professionals at all ends of the spectrum and not lumping one into a category of non-lawyer. I think that's really pejorative and uh, uh, indicative of not uh, moving forward in the, in the way we need to move forward. More importantly, I want to talk about justifications for, for technology because it does seem like the powder is running dry uh, in terms of, of how we fund legal technology and process improvement investments within corporations, which have been the drivers, notwithstanding the AL, AL Top 50, right? So uh, I'd like to hear some more. We talked about deal velocity. We've talked about, um, we talked about labor arbitrage or, 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 or downsizing of legal professionals. What else have you had success with in order to uh, provide funding for improvement? I, I think one of the key things you've got to look at as a legal profession is how to avoid being cost pressured. I mean, Telstra talk out 25% of the lawyers. What was the alternative path? And we're talking about data today. And, and realizing the value of the data that you've already got at your fingertips. You don't have to go and build new systems. Um, so if you're in <coughs> professional practice, do you know when your customers' contracts are coming up for renewal because that's your next upsell? So think through it, right? What data do you already have about your customer? Um, your, co your customers' contracts, if you're in private practice, would already tell you what industry they're in. So therefore you, you can dedicate your, um, 
give a legal update to the very individual things that they, ca they care about. Now, most of you would have some level of this at your fingertips. A lot of it's probably in the back of the head of the lawyer that you're used to. But as legal uh, profession becomes more of a um, first in, first serve, rather than a lawyer dedicated to a, a group of customers, because that's the way you're moving, you're going to need systems to tell you this really rapidly what the customer really is going to care about. So that would be something I'd suggest to you from a, a growth point of view. Um, from an in-house point of view, our contract data system now picks up um, so much that the sales team has been crying for. Contract renewal dates sounds so simple, but we've now been able to build the sales process on top of the contract process. We're going down to the smart contracting uh, world. The smart contracting world basically says the contract will drive your business. Now, if the contract is driving your business, lawyers are in charge of the contract. You can deal yourself into that game, or you can let people like me from commercial deal themselves into the game. Your choice. Think about that. Where, where do you want to play? So you've got contract renewal. Every customer you've got's probably got an, uh, an industry identifier. You can map your products that you're selling against that industry identifier and do heat maps. These are bits of data you've already got, and so on and so forth. Get someone to have a look through your contracts and work out what data you've got that's there already. You don't need to build new systems if you've got it there. Um, even if you've got it in a very rudimentary flavour, start with that and build. Um, that would be a few tips. I, I couldn't agree with that more. If, if you can figure out how to mine and understand the data in your own contracts, uh, that's huge. Most companies haven't. Uh, most companies that are running uh, contract lifecycle management platforms, which have been around for several decades now, they're, they're ancient in the legal tech world. Uh, they're not leveraging them really in that capacity. Uh, they may be notifying them of renewal dates or this or that, but um, they're, they're not fully leveraging and mining their data. And that kind of gets to the, what is your pathway to get there? It was what I touched on at the outset. You know, our operational data set is, is, is on a platform that isn't necessarily overly compatible, so we would have to solve for that. Uh, but, um, you know, any legal department, if you're talking about, I know I don't want to jump ahead to a later question, is, is how can legal departments drive growth? Uh, give them access to data. And, and we've done that very successfully in our leases. We have, we have uh, over 500 commercial leases, and they are now sitting on a platform that Exigent provided. And we're able to provide analytical reporting across that entire portfolio. Uh, we're able, we, we have tied that into our, our ERM Oracle, and we've tied it into Workday. So we have employee counts. We have all of this. It, data does not live in a vacuum. So if you think you're going to be able to just tap into one data source and, and, and get a worldview, you're not. And uh, that was a learning experience for us. And we had to get HR and finance on board. Um, but the visibility we have into that, that small piece is huge because our second largest expense behind payroll is occupancy expense. I mean, I think, <coughs> John, I, I love your socks, by the way. Thank you, you John. I, I, you're, you're here with a mat. With I was hoping we'd have a table in front of us, but <laughs> well, actually, I, I guess that cost extra. No such luck. <laughs> well, it, it, you were worth it, though, John, to be totally fair. But, um, but that's a really interesting point, and I thought what Peter, Peter's point was very interesting too. My question for you, actually, would be in this sort of re-education process, which probably took, you know, four hours of three, three hours of blocks or whatever, you know, what did it really change the attitude of people that have been imbued with a certain sense of 
education from law school, from, from A-levels, or whatever we call them here, through to law school, through to training in a big law firm, did, did that sort of short shock actually make them different or, or make their attitude different? You're talking about our Six Sigma training? Uh, I was actually talking to our Australian friend here. Oh, Peter. sorry. But, but you, you can you can fill in, John, with your crazy I was, We haven't lost any yet to the big four, if that's what you're asking. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, that's a good point. But here's the thing, though. What I'm saying is, you know, kind of, it's almost like a re-education. It's like a redirection training is what you were talking about, about Six Sigma and whatever. Does it actually work? I, you know, it, it, the reality of it is, did we transform people's lives with, you know, a day of, of, of hardcore project management training? No, what we're doing is we're building awareness. And we'll follow that up in six months with something that builds on it. And um, we want people to start thinking a little bit outside of the box. Don't look at it as a contract. Look at it as a process to get from point A to signature. And you know, that is a, it is a reprogramming of sorts. But don't you, don't you think thinking, trying to train lawyers to think outside the box when they can only most of their time is spent building the box is a pretty big challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing, you know, as a part of our, uh, we had all of our lawyers and compliance professionals in from all over the country today, and we, we did a change style assessment. So everyone took a test to see where they were on the spectrum of, I, I, I'm not going to use the technical terms they use, but resistant to change and, you know, just the, the entrepreneur that is trying to change everything. And, you know, I, I think as a legal department and a compliance uh, department, we were pretty progressive, pretty open to that. But, you know, we didn't have anyone in that entrepreneur going to change the way everything is doing. And I, I, I'd have been surprised and maybe at some level concerned. That's the one where don't follow policies was one of the questions. You know, you, lawyers aren't wired that way. Um, but you know, we do have lawyers that are now thinking about things in a different way. And it's, as I, as I said at the outset, it's slow moving. It, it isn't going to be transformational. And as we recruit younger talent with different worldviews, uh, they're going to help. But don't you I think this is, that that's fantastic? But it's like genuinely, this is a hair that's run away four miles ago. And and legal has to be, can't be a snail. I mean, it's going to be years before you catch up. I, I'm going to pass the microphone off before you get bored of me. But don't you think? It's like literally, it's across the hill. The hair's across the hill. And, and, and while I wouldn't advocate cutting 25% of all lawyers, the fact that that happened woke everybody up. They are now on board because they don't have a choice. There's something to be said for dictatorial change management. But what it's done, it has changed the culture because they now know that they've got the same amount of work with 25% less people, so they have an incredible vested interest in the digital platforms working. And that is a culture changed overnight. So while I wouldn't you know, recommend that for everybody, it did have the right impact. So think through perhaps a more uh, humane way of doing it in your organisations, but finding that critical lever that makes people go, I have a vested interest in digitisation working, and then ultimately AI and robotics as they come down their path, would be uh, the challenge. Okay, we've got a question here, and then we actually 
we've got a question down here, and then we actually have to wrap up. Unfortunately, we've got like a 5:15 hard cut deadline here. Unfortunately, folks, and I know it's been really exciting discussion, but go ahead, Isabella. Uh, okay, so my question was just a, well, maybe more of a comment than a question um, about the lawyers and thinking as entrepreneurs and changing everything. But in change management, uh, the use of language can maybe have a big influence. So you said that so many, like no lawyer would say, uh, no, we're not gonna follow the policies. But I'm sure there will be a lot more lawyers that will be open if you tell them, go and rewrite those policies. Well, it, it you know, Building on, we did Six Sigma a few months ago. We did change style this week. That's building awareness around people's willingness to change because th they're not going to change overnight. And, you know, one of the things, if, you're, if your eight-year-old wants to ride her bike in the street and you tell her, no, she can't, that's not the best way to approach it. You could say, well, you can ride it on the street, but you have to find a cul-de-sac and, and you have to ride it there. If you ride on the sidewalk, you can ride anywhere you want. So you, you have to approach change in a way, because lawyers first and foremost are humans, and then they're, they're resistant to change for, for, for the most part if you look at how they were brought up, because deviating off of the preferred approach has risk. Um, but yeah, we, we are constantly reshaping our team in, in, in subtle ways to get them more aware and to get them more open to that. Because if you don't effectively manage change management, whatever you're implementing is not going to be successful. I would, I would just add that, that we've, we've, we've had the Six Sigma at, I think we're all yellow belts. I, I don't even know what the different belts are. I think it's <laughs> one of the lower. But um, again, you had to one-up us, didn't you? Oh, is that what it was? <laughs> 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 Something to strive for. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, uh, the leadership training uh, that Crystal was talking about, it builds us. That and the process uh, training builds self-awareness in, in, in every legal team member, every team member uh, throughout the organization. To the extent you, you, you make the spend, it, it really gets cross-departmental uh, folks uh, talking the same language and, and uh, you know, going towards Great. the same Thank goal. you. Just want to, before, before you uh, respond to that, John, I uh, just want to just quickly touch on, you know, whether the legal can drive growth. That was one of the questions that we had. Could you just tell us a bit of that story that you shared with me the other day in the office about Apple and iTunes and the lawyers? Sure. This is probably the best example of lawyers enabling growth. And if you look back at the history long before there was an iPhone or an iPad, what transformed Apple was not the new Mac, it was an iPod. And Apple did not invent the MP3 player, Sony did. What they invented was the music marketplace, iTunes. Without iTunes, the iPod is not successful and Apple is a marginal uh, maker of PCs that are probably technologically superior to, to, to the mass market. And the lawyers did that, uh, and, and you know, this is Steve Jobs' vision, but you're talking about iTunes is across multiple geographies, uh, multiple copyright holders. They had to figure out how to do this without tying it back to a CD. You used to be able to, to see immediately 
and, and breaking an album of, of 12 songs, which had a nice royalty to it, down to a single song. I mean, the, the, the groundbreaking that those lawyers did to develop and enable iTunes to exist, I would say is the single biggest driver that transformed Apple into the company it is today, which on any given day, it has the, the largest market cap in the world. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, folks, there is another uh, event happening here right after this one, so we're going to have to close it up. But just to give Peter one more, uh, kind of a last word for us, Peter. Oh, last word. Uh, you want to go out on yeah. a good note. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to pe get people to think about where contracts are going. If contracts, are s smart contracts, are starting to become instructions for machines, not instructions for people. Everybody's used to writing contracts as instructions for people. Mm -hmm. Just take that concept that you're now writing instructions for machines. Someone previously said, if then else. I mean, that's how you write a computer program. It's also how you write a contract. So if you can get that mindset, you're moving into this new world. Um, and to wrap up, with what should law schools teach, coding, so that they can understand this new world of if, if then else, would be quite valuable. And I think if you can, as lawyers, find the data that you've already got at your fingertips, I think there is a great growth opportunity. So. Excellent. Thank you very much for our panelists. Thank you all for participating in today's event.